Father, our salvation rests upon your gracious nature. We are the ones that have fallen into sin and rebelled against you. And yet in your goodness and your kindness and your love for that which you have made, you have made a promise. You've kept your promise. You've sent your son. And he has lived a perfect life and died a death, been buried and resurrected and ascended. He lives now and he sees and he hears and he acts and he knows all things. And so it's our prayer, Father, that as we are mindful today from our passage of the life that we live together, we would always remember that the life that we live together amongst one another was a life lived out with you in our presence as well. There's nowhere we can go to escape your presence. And for us as believers, that's a wonderful, wonderful promise. Your, your presence with us always. I pray that we would embrace that today, that we would love it and see the, the goodness in it for us. Draw our eyes to you today, Lord. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, to your word, and um, bless this time today. Be pleased through the worship that we offer this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to take a quick moment to kind of, again, repeat and piggyback what it is that Dan had said during the announcements. Our Sunday school is up and running, and there is children's church provided for um, ages 0 to 10. And we have wonderful, wonderful teachers. Those classes are fully staffed, and so... We look forward to you guys coming to the Sunday School, joining us. It's just a great blessing and privilege. I, I think, you know, getting here at 9 o'clock, hearing Craig teach about, this, about the topic of Sola Scriptura, um, just really, I think, prepares our hearts to gather together for our time of worship that we are partaking in right now. So again, I too would encourage you guys to come and join us for that Sunday School Hour 9 to 9.45. And, um, and, worship with us in that way during that time. Um, our sermon title today is Life Together, and I borrowed this title from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book that he wrote, titled Life Together. And it's all about Christian community. It's not a big book. It's not real thick. It's this guy right here. Um, but in it, he talks about the importance of Christian community and fellowship. And I think for anybody who's been a believer for a given amount of time knows that living life with other people, even though we're living life with other believers, still at times can be incredibly hard. You will experience some of the greatest moments of sweet fellowship as you live life with other believers. You will also experience some of the hardest moments of conflict and difficulty when you live life with other believers as well. And the, the, the call for us to live together is what we want to take a look at in our passage today. Dietrich Baumenhofer would say in this book that it's, it's grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. He sees it as a tremendous act of God's mercy and grace that we are allowed and given the privilege to live life among one another, regardless of how great the difficulties are, how sweet the moments of fellowship are. So much so that he would go on to say this in this little book. When a person becomes alienated from a Christian community in which he has been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he had better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that he should be shattered by God. And he talks about this wish dream being our own, our own dreams, our own desires of what it is that we want the church to be, what we want Christian community to be like. And if we're having problems with living in, as a professing believer, if we're having problems living within the context, the community, the Christian brethren and, and sisters, the church, that the first place we should look and the first person we should examine is ourselves because it is a, because it is a great blessing and grace given to us by God to live life together as believers. And we're going to notice today in our passage that it is not always easy to do that. But still, it is something that God calls us to do. 
One commentator that I read said that just because we live in a flawed community doesn't mean we live in a false community. The church community is greatly flawed because guess what? We're in it. And we bring all of our flaws and all of our problems to this church community. And to a very great degree, we rely upon the gracious and kind and forgiving and patient and long-suffering and merciful nature of one another in order for this community to continue to grow. If we want to build a community of faith, hope, and love where Christ is exalted and lives are transformed, it means that you and I are going to have to practice a tremendous amount of patience and forgiveness and mercy with one another. We live in a flawed community, but that doesn't mean that it's a false one. And so today in our passage, we want to look at what it is that Jesus talks about being an essential quality and characteristic of this community that we live life together in. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 together. And so we want to read that and then work our way through it and notice a few of the things that are components of this community that God calls us out of the world of darkness and into this community of his beloved people, his bride. He loves the church so much, he calls it his, his bride. And it's a great privilege that we're a part of it. So Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, we'll read it, and then we'll look at a few of the components involved in living this life together. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would have been better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now our passage for next week is joined with this, but I've intentionally broken it up into two parts just so that we can really, I think, grasp what it is that our Lord is saying here in our passage together. Jesus has now taught his disciples. He's teaching them two specific areas in particular over the last few chapters. One, the first is the area of issue of stewardship that we saw in chapter 16, that he calls us to be stewards with the unrighteous wealth that he gives to us and to manage it and steward it well. And we spent about three weeks talking about money, and I think by now everybody's like, whew, I'm glad we're past that money stuff. We can get on to some other things. Because it's hard. We talk about money, and it's always a touchy subject for everybody. But it's important. He, he specifically addresses this issue of good stewardship with his disciples. Then he moves on today to talk about another issue, and we see it in chapter 17, verse 1, and he said to his disciples, he's been ping-ponging back and forth between teaching the Pharisees, correcting them, teaching the disciples, and, but everybody's in the same room, if you will. Even when he's speaking to the disciples, the Pharisees hear it. When he's correcting the Pharisees, the disciples are hearing it. So there's multiple ways that these lessons can be taken and applied and heard. But specifically in this case, he's talking to his disciples. He's Address the issue of stewardship. Now, in large, he's going to address the issue of sin, temptation, and forgiveness. And I think if we are, have our eyes open, we can clearly see the relationship between temptation, sin, and forgiveness. These things are common components to every relationship that we are a part of, even those within the church. The first component that we notice that as we live life together is the presence of temptation and sin. He says in chapter 17, verse 1, and he said to his disciples, temptations are sure to come. It's, it's even more emphatically and clearly written in the Greek when he says it is impossible for temptation to not come. It's impossible for temptation to not come. If you are expecting that because you are one of my disciples, you're going to live a life free of temptation, you better rethink what it is that you're looking at. Because it is impossible, as my disciple, for temptation to not come into your life. The life of someone who wants to follow Christ is a life of constant battle of temptation. 
Have you ever felt that way? Battling perhaps the same temptation again for years, over and over. Battling new temptations. You feel like you have victory in this one and then another one arises and you kind of wonder, is this ever going to stop? And the answer is no. It will not. Not until we go to be with him in glory. That's one of the sweetest things that we are looking forward to in our union, our final union with Christ is being free from all of this temptation, wickedness, and sin that we're plagued with. The temptation is, it's a stumbling block. It's a bait stick. You think of a, a fishing rod with a hook at the end and some bait on it or a lure, what's the desire? If you're fishing with me, your hope is that you just get a nibble. But the idea is that you're going out and you're gonna catch something. And that's what temptation is. It's a, it's a trap, it's a bait stick. It's how something or someone is caught. In and of itself, temptation it's bad because we live in a fallen world and without the fall, there would be no temptation to love anything or anybody more than we love God. But temptation in and of itself is not, is not um, if you feel or experience temptation, that does not mean that that is a wicked thing. Our Lord Jesus himself faced temptation and yet was completely free from sin. So the fact that he was faced with temptation didn't, didn't take away from his divine nature. It's the, it's the, as we will see, the giving in to the temptation where the problem arises. He says, temptation is an impo- it is impossible for temptation to sin to, to not arise. And I think we, want, we need to think about this in a couple ways. Uh, we need to think about it in one way, which we talk about, I think, very often at this church in one way in which James presents to us very well, very clearly, where temptation comes from. He says in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So, so, so temptation never comes from God. But each person is tempted when he is lured Again, there's that word, the idea of being drawn into a trap when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Temptation comes from within, the desire to give in to temptation. We see something, we want something, and there's already a part of our sinful nature that becomes attached to that thing. And we want it, we desire it, and we then, we we need to, Examine whether or not we're going to spend any time pursuing that thing. If it's, if it's sinful and wrong, then the obvious answer is no. Zero time given, zero thought given, dedicated to pursuing this thing. But there's an intrinsic nature in which um, we are prone to falling into temptation. It's just part of who we are because of the fall. There's another aspect, though, which Jesus mentions specifically in our passage here today, and it's that which, the temptation that comes from outside of us. This was the primary warning that Moses and Joshua gave to the people when they went into the promised land. These people before you that inhabit this land that I'm giving to you, drive them out completely because they will be a snare to you. They will be a temptation. They will be a bait stick. And if you do not completely remove them from your presence, they will draw you in to their sinful ways and tendencies. And we see that happening all around us as well. There are things that in this life that we're drawn to. We're drawn to not only want and have, but we're drawn to worship comes out, it springs out of the heart. And these things that we are drawn to are simply just opportunities for us to join our affections with whatever that thing is. And Jesus in this passage is interesting. Temptations are sure to come, but woe, there's a warning there, a threatening to the one through whom they come. 
He's talking about people. He doesn't say to the thing through which temptations come. He says, woe to the one through who temptations come. In the context, you know, he's been talking and combating the Pharisees and their love of money and their legalism. And so in the immediate context, it would be woe to the Pharisees. We saw this actually in chapter 12 where he um, encouraged the disciples to be on guard against the hypocrisy. The leaven of of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So to beware, to be on guard against them. Because it is through other people that temptations can come. One of the questions that I ask when I read this passage is when he's talking to the disciples and he says, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Is he talking specifically just to them? Is he talking about people in general? Is he talking about any believer, any Christian to be on guard against temptation? And the answer to that is actually found for us in verse 2. After he says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, so he's talking about the one through whom temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. Then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. We see that he's talking about, Luke uses this term, little ones. And in his book, and in the Gospel of Luke, this term is only used four times, one of which is to refer to Zacchaeus as literally a little man. The other three times, it's used to describe the flock, to describe the believer in general. And so we can take this as an application to the disciples, but to anybody who claims to be a disciple of Christ. Temptations are sure to come to anybody who calls himself a disciple of Christ. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around that person's neck than they were dropped into the ocean. One commentator again said, it's better to be dead than to be a false guide. To lead someone to spiritual decay. To spiritual ruin to lead somebody astray, you're better off not ever being born. You think about all the false teachers, the health, wealth, prosperity, gospel teachers that are out there. You think about all the false religions that are out there. This is a a woe to you people who are tempting or to lead other people astray blatantly with false teaching. And again, he has the Pharisees in mind. I think of the fact that He has the Pharisees in mind here, but also he's addressing, and when you think about it, just the general sinfulness of sin. Sin is so wicked. Sin is so sinful that it's better to not ever have existed than to be the culprit of a stumbling block and to play the part of cause of sin in somebody else's life. That's how wicked sin is. We play lightly with sin. We don't really put it to death like Scripture calls us to. But sin is nothing but a desire to kill and to destroy. And its sinfulness is incredibly great. And we see what it is. Actually, sin is defined for us in this passage as well. You think about what it is that Jesus is saying. Temptations to sin or stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. These agents of stumbling that cause other people to stumble. To beware of them and to be on our guard about them. And so he says rightly in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. How well do you pay attention to what is going on around you? How well do you pay attention to the information that you take in? To the things that you see? 
The stuff you listen to. How much time do we pay attention to what's going on within the heart? Do we, are, we, are we vigilant? This is, this is language of Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Do not let this spring just gush and flow wherever it may please. You have to take some control, some personal responsibility for what it is that is going on within your heart, what it is that you're desiring. It's very common nowadays. People say, well, it's just, I just feel the way that I feel. I can't control my feelings. I can't control what it is that I desire and what I want, what I love, what I hope for, what I dream about. And that's just unbiblical teaching. Scripture over and over again calls us to take care, to pay attention. Do you live your life sober-minded? Or do you walk around just living your life as if you're wandering around in the darkness? Having no idea what it is that's going on around you and very, paying very little attention to what's going on inside of you. Addressing the thoughts and desires and the intentions of the heart. Jesus here specifically is speaking about those stumbling blocks that may come to the disciples. But just by way of implication, I think it's important for us to consider the fact that it's also a warning to us that we do not play the role of a stumbling block in the life of another person. Paul would write in Romans 14, 13, Therefore let us not not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. It's the same word that Luke uses for stumbling block. Paul uses here in Romans 14, 13. You as a believer, make sure that you're not being a stumbling block in the, life of your, in the life of your brother or sister in Christ. We live life together. Temptation and sin are sure to come, but we should do all that we can to make sure that if it's going to come, it ain't coming through me. And do all that I can to guard my own heart and pay attention to what it is that's going on inside of me. It's a call to listen. It's a call to beware. But there's also the other component. As we see this first, this first phrase in verse 3, not only pay attention to yourselves, as in don't allow yourself to stumble over the stumbling blocks, don't allow yourself to give in to temptation, don't be a stumbling block in someone else's life. But as you live life together, consider the people around you that you're living with as well. Pay attention to yourselves and also... If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Another essential component of living life together in the presence of sin and temptation is forgiveness. I don't know how often you think about forgiveness. I think about it a lot. It is an essential component to the life of a believer. The ability to forgive another person. Galatians, I think, chapter 6, verse 1, is again another wonderful uh, passage to remind us of this. And again, listen to the command, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Again, joining together the idea of pay attention to yourself and pay attention to those who are around you. And you who are spiritual should seek to restore those who are living in sin. Or as we use the language of Luke chapter 17, if your brother sins, again, this is the product, you see that someone, a brother or sister in Christ has been presented with a stumbling block. They've stumbled over it. They have now committed sin. The role of the believer is to go to that person and, as Jesus says here, to rebuke him. Now, rebuking, again, can be, there's a spectrum on which a rebuke can take place. It's everything from just a mild correction. Hey, I noticed, you know, you did this or said this. It's, 
That kind of stuff is, you know, it's not pleasing to the Lord. Every, to the other end of the spectrum of a, just a firm, flat-out rebuke and correction. You cannot do this any longer type of response. I think 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is helpful in, in this way in particular. It says, I urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with them all. As you go to correct people, there are going to be some that are going to be idle. These are the people who know better. They, are do- they know that what they are doing is wrong. They know that what they're doing is living in sin. These people need to be admonished straight away. What you're doing is wrong. You need to repent and turn from it. There are other people who are faint-hearted. They're, they're, they're discouraged maybe in their faith. Maybe they're not really aware of what it is that they're doing is, is wrong. And so it takes someone to come to them and say, I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to give you the courage to see that what you're doing is wrong, and I'm going to call you out to not do that anymore. And then there are some people who are weak. There are some people who are just so weak in their faith. Maybe they're baby Christians. Maybe they're Maybe they've been a Christian for a long time, but they're just immature in their faith and they're weak. They're, they're crushed. They're burdened, overburdened by the weight of their sin. They don't, know, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to make things better. And so for those people, we come alongside them and we, we help them. We hold their hand and put our arm around them. We, if need be, we, we carry them at times. But the thing that encompasses all of them is be patient with them all. Be patient with all of them. I think of the importance of forgiveness. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If you go to that person and they repent, then forgiveness is what ensues. And I think that this is really a a challenge for many of us, because then we go, well, what does forgiveness look like? And how do I forgive somebody? And I think the, you know, one of the passages that Seth read, the passage that he read earlier, is really, really important to think through along these lines. What does it mean to forgive somebody? To what degree do we forgive people? Well, Scripture is clear in Colossians 3.13. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So then that makes you think, well, then to what degree has God forgiven me? Because my forgiveness of this other person is supposed to look like the forgiveness that God has given to me. And when you meditate and you think upon the goodness of God and the forgiveness that you have been given through Jesus Christ for your sin, that you commit still today think of how think of how patient god is with you think about how merciful how long does he bear with you how long does he put up with our sin this is what forgiveness looks like. I think if you want a wonderful passage, look at Psalm 103. Probably one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of what forgiveness looks like. Psalm 103, verse 10 through 14. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You need, we need to remember that the people that we live life with, even within this Christian community, are dust. They're prone to wandering. They're prone. We're prone to sinning against one another. And so forgiveness is practiced continually over and over again. 
But then listen to how he, Jesus says it in verse 4. So pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, now it's getting personal, right? Three times. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now it's not just, we're not just talking about, you know, vague and broad generalities. If I see someone committing a sin, I'm going to go to them and correct them from what they've done. That's one thing. It's another thing to be the one who has personally been wronged and sinned against about some, by somebody else. Seven times in one day, no less. And what does Jesus say? And if he comes to you and says, I repent, you must forgive. The repentance part is important. He's saying, he, in the passage he's saying, the person's coming to you and says, I repent. This is a type of confession. And confession is an important element to forgiveness as it goes, as it, as it applies to our personal relationships with one another. It's a type of confession. Again, Bonhoeffer in his book would say, in confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Confession is an offer of divine help for the sinner. Confession is the way of which sin, when we commit sin, we, 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 we break our fellowship with the one that we've sinned against. We break our fellowship with God to a degree. Confession is the way back in to be restored to fellowship with one another. The person that you've wronged, this isn't, well, I just hope they forget about it. This isn't, I'm just going to sweep it under the rug. This is that there's been a personal offense that has actually occurred. What are we going to do about this? How can we come back together again? And if you think about the ways that you have been wronged in your life, you know that this is just heart-tearing at times. How could I possibly forgive him? How could I possibly forgive her? Jesus, you have no idea what it is that that person has done to me. And I, and I have to, you're saying, I must forgive them? And if they come to me seven times, do it seven times in one day. And say, I, for, I repent. I have to forgive them? You've got to be kidding me. This is why forgiveness is such an essential component to the life of the believer. The only way to overcome hurts, personal sins, wrongs done against one another is by resting in, embracing in, and being humbled by the forgiveness that's been given to you in Christ. We do this to him every day. We sin against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords repeatedly. Over and over again, we transgress the moral law, this covenant that he's made with us. Man, I'm telling you what, if it had not been for him being the covenant maker and the covenant keeper, we would all be doomed but he has moved towards us and covenanted with us and promised to never leave us nor forsake us if we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Relishing that, understanding that, meditating upon that is what enables us to practice and extend genuine forgiveness towards other people. Now, forgiveness, I think, needs to be understood in a couple ways. There's two questions generally that I hear when it comes to a text like this or the issue of forgiveness. Number one, first question is, what if the person doesn't repent? If they do not repent, must I forgive them? Is repentance, is, is forgiveness conditional upon the person repenting? I would say that yes and no. I would say that it is conditional upon 
the fact that if the person never acknowledges their sin, and they never repent, and they never seek to turn from it, that there's a horizontal aspect of forgiveness, there's a transaction of forgiveness between two people that cannot take place. There will be disconnection in fellowship between two people. If the person who has done the wrong never repents and never goes to the person, honestly, audibly, openly says, this is what I have done, I have sinned against you in this way in particular, I am sorry for it, would you please forgive me for what it is that I have done? If the person never does that, there continues to be a fracture in the relationship. That's the horizontal aspect of forgiveness. But there's a vertical aspect of forgiveness as well, as to where if you are the person who has been wronged, and you're waiting for this other person to come to you and repent, which might be quite a while, you are constantly working on the condition of your heart between you and the Lord. That if that person were to call you or stop by or ring your doorbell or whatever at a moment's notice and they do this and they confess, that you can genuinely offer and extend forgiveness to them. Because in your vertical relationship with the Lord, it's in a position to forgive. You want fellowship restored with this other person. So we're always working on the vertical aspect. Even after, how long do hurts linger? Even after the person has come to you and repented and said, I'm so, I am so sorry for what I've done to you. Would you please forgive me? And you say, yes, I forgive you. And then what do you do later that day, that night? You think about it. I really still, oof. They don't really understand what they've done to me. You know, then it's the, start rehearsing it all over again. You have to constantly maintain this vertical relationship of a heart of forgiveness towards other people. The other question that I hear is actually found just in verse 4 in and of itself. If repentance is a genuine change in people's behavior and character, which I would agree it is, then isn't verse 4 contradicting itself? How can the person who sins against me seven times in one day, i.e., is not really changing their behavior, still expected to receive genuine forgiveness? And I would say this, is that we need to take these situations into consideration on their own. And I use, I'll use this example. Say somebody is, has the struggle of speaking harshly with other people. And they speak harshly with you. And they say, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? I, I know that that was wrong. You say, yes, I forgive you. An hour later, the person is harsh with you again. I'm sorry, I'm working on this. Would you please forgive me? Yes, I'll forgive you. 30 minutes later, again, you know, again. There's a difference between somebody who is working through this process of change and repentance. Repentance is genuine change in behavior. It's a change of thinking. It's a change of desire. It's a change of doing. But I think we would all agree, this just does not happen overnight. There is a process involved in sanctification and growing and changing. And so we need to take these things and individually and consider, is this person going through the process of change and repentance is going to be a normal part of it? They're going to sin against you and you're going to extend forgiveness and it needs to be genuine to where it doesn't fracture the relationship. Or is this person just using the words but not actually changing and repenting? You have, yeah, we have to look at these things. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is helpful in giving us a definition of what repentance is. I won't take the time to read through that passage today, but I would encourage you to, to do that if you can. I want to move on to the, the last component of living life together. We see that in life together there will be sin and temptation. We see in living life together there should be forgiveness. And then we see in living life together there is the application of faith in doing so. I think we understand the apostles' reply in verse 5, right? Someone comes to you seven times a day saying, would you forgive me? You must forgive them. The apostles' response is, increase our faith. 
I, 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 they understand. They really get and understand. What's interesting is that Luke doesn't use this word apostle very often. In fact, the last time that he used, this, used it was in chapter 9 when he equipped the apostles to go out and to proclaim the kingdom of God and to cast out demons and to heal diseases. This group of 12 men that had extraordinary and incredible power that was limited to the office of, a, of an apostle. These are the men. These are the men that had been able to cast out demons, been able to heal people of their diseases. The one, these are the ones who say, we understand what you're asking us to do in interpersonal conflict. Increase our faith. You've got to give us more faith. What they're literally asking for is more, they want more quantity. The faith that we have is not enough. Give us more so that we can do this. And Jesus' response in verse 6 is, if you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Your problem is not the amount of faith. Your problem is the application of faith. You've been given all the faith that you need. This is what is really astounding, I think. In, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in being brought into relationship with Him, being covered, soaked, the, an, an eternal fountain of forgiveness and mercy and grace, living in the context of a relationship with God like that, you know what it's like to taste the sweetness of forgiveness. The faith that you have in me and a knowledge of me is enough. Your problem is not that you need more faith to be able to forgive this person for what they've done. Your problem is you are not applying your faith in forgiveness. Because if you had faith, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and go into the sea. Mulberry trees were known to live up to 500 years because of their vast root system. He's not talking about some little shrub that you could just easily pluck out. He's talking about something that is formidable. And of course, he's used, this is exaggeration. How many times have we seen this passage taken out of context? All I need is more faith and I can move mountains and I can do whatever God calls me to do. The point isn't that you need more faith. The point is applying it. You have been forgiven so greatly in me. Now I want you to, in faith, apply forgiveness to those who repent and come to you and wrong you. That's the point. And again, look at the repetition of three in verse six of the word you. Verse four, if, a, if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's highly personal in nature. It's as if he's talking to each person individually as he addresses all of his disciples. And how is it that he can ask them to do this? Does Jesus know anything about being wronged? Is he familiar at all with what it's like to have someone turn? Does he not know, is he not aware of what it feels like to have someone absolutely stab you in the back? to betray you, to turn on you, to run from you, to curse you? Doesn't he know all of this? And yet, isn't this how he treats us? Isn't he continually forgiving? Isn't it true that our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Isn't he merciful to us in these ways? Doesn't the scripture call us in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God? To put on Christ's likeness. Forgiveness is, is, is incredibly difficult. No one's denying that. But we are denying that it is impossible. 
And what we need to do is apply the faith that we've been giving specifically in the form of forgiveness. And that means working on the vertical heart condition of always having a heart that is willing to move towards other in, others in forgiveness. To send away. That word forgive means literally to send it away. To no longer hold on to it. I think of a couple ways in which we can think through these things personally. We've talked already about being aware of what it is to be forgiven of so much, and so therefore we can extend forgiveness to to others. The question is, will you? Is there somebody who's come to you and sought your forgiveness and you're withholding? You're living in sin. Is there somebody who has not come to you and sought your forgiveness and you could really care less? Don't care if I ever hear from that person again. That's also sin. So we should be cultivating a heart of forgiveness towards these people always. Do you see it? Do you understand and experience the blessing of what it is to receive forgiveness when you confess your sin? Do you know what it's like when living in sin or harboring sin, you finally openly confess it and you know what it's like to be washed clean? Do you want to be that agent of God in someone else's life? Do you desire to be the person that says, I forgive you? And then that person experiences the wash and the wave of what it's like to be forgiven in a relationship restored. Are we repentant over our own sin? Do you pay attention to your own heart? Is there a way in which you have wronged somebody in which you need to go to them and confess that you have sinned against them and seek their forgiveness? You know what the biggest hindrance for us doing that is usually? Ah, that person will never forgive me. What's the point? I've, I've totally, I have totally ruined that relationship. There's no way. You don't know that. And really, the only thing that you're responsible to do is what God calls you to do. You are not in control of their actions or their responses. Because your desire is to please the Lord, you seek to do what's right in His eyes, and that means if you have wronged somebody, you go to them, you confess it, and you seek their forgiveness. And you see what they do, and you see what they say, and you see what the Lord might bring out of it. And then also, do you know how to, do you know how to approach? Do you know how to confront others in an appropriate way when you see them in sin? This might be one of the most difficult of them all. Usually, we see someone in sin, and we go, oh man, I'm going to pray for that person. Which is good. We should pray, right? But oftentimes we use prayers like, so I don't have to get involved. Because I know that if I tell that person what they're doing is wrong, it, we, this might be a fight on my hands. And I don't want that. So I'm not going there. Or maybe you just don't know how. I see someone committing sin, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say it. I don't know to be gen- how to be gentle. I don't know how to be clear without being offensive. I don't, you know, all these excuses that we have. This is part of developing Christian character, of being able to, and this is why it takes place within the community, the life together. If we're living life together, we know, is this person idle? Are they faint-hearted or are they weak? And if I'm taking what I know about them, I can then say, okay, this person is weak. I need to help them. What does help look like biblically? Oh, this person is faint-hearted. Okay, well, I need to encourage them. What does biblical encouragement look like? This person is idle. They just need to be admonished. Don't, you cannot, you, it's a whole nother sermon. I'm getting into a whole nother sermon. This is counseling, biblical counseling 101. This is living life together in community with each other. 
Community and life together involves temptation and sin, forgiveness, and faith applied. As we prepare to come to the communion table this morning, I think we have plenty to think about and to pray about as we come to the table. You know, when we do so, our eyes are drawn specifically to the one. This, the reason why we do this every week is because our eyes are drawn to the one who has bled and died for you and me. He has forgiven us. If you are in Christ, what a wonderful privilege and gift it is that you have been given full pardon, full forgiveness, freedom in Christ. Only don't use your freedom for yourself, but use it for the good of other people. We come to the table reminded, we're reminded of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. This is for believers, this communion time. If you're not a believer in Christ, just don't partake. But then consider the forgiveness that he offers in Christ to you. The eternal life that he offers to you in his son, Jesus Christ, and in him alone. And know that there is openness, forgiveness, and pardon available if you would come to him in faith. And then the other component for us as we come to the table is not only rejoicing in the forgiveness that's been given to us, but we come and we confess in the ways in which we have not lived in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Maybe specifically in this area of forgiveness. And this is the first place where you confess it. You confess that you are withholding forgiveness from someone else. You confess the fact that you have not sought forgiveness from somewhere else. This is the place to come. If you're new here at North Hills, this is something that we take together, the bread and the cup. So I do invite you to get up and grab the elements from the tables behind you, but return back to your seat and hold on to them. Spend some time in prayer, confession, meditation, and then I'll lead us in taking this communion time together in a few moments. So, please.